0: Hey, my name's Ross, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I'm glad you're here. If you've got your Bibles, go to Joshua chapter 3. That's where we're going to be. And as you turn there, I'll tell you, I, one of the things I've gotten to do um, as a pastor is I get to do a lot of weddings. And usually what goes with a wedding is a rehearsal dinner, and uh, or rehearsal and then a rehearsal dinner. And it has been um, more than one occasion that I've seen a bride absolutely freak out at a rehearsal. And it's usually because, um, in fact, no, it's always because of this uh, group of people called groomsmen. And at a rehearsal dinner, uh, somewhere, groomsmen get some memo that they're supposed to drive the bride crazy and not do any of the things they're supposed to do, like show up to the rehearsal on time stand where they're supposed to stand. And so there's all these logistics that go into a rehearsal, and particularly if it's a big wedding or something like that. And at some point, I usually have to tell the bride, kind of pull her aside, usually the bride and her mother, pull them aside and say, look, here's the deal. No matter what happens tomorrow, at the very end of this wedding, there will be the pronouncement, you know, that I make, uh, you know, by the authority vested in me, you are husband and wife. And there's not anything a groomsman can do. There's not, there's not really anything that can happen if you both show up and come and stand there and endure this ceremony. At the end of the day, you're going to be married. And that's the whole reason that you're here. I remember one I was doing, it was Highland park methodist church big beautiful church Um, and the uh groomsmen thought it would be funny to cut the wick off in the unity candle i'm not sure i didn't know i didn't think we'd get to the end of that one but uh but we did she kept trying to light the candle with no wick and it just made wax and it was Finally, I had to say, honey, put the lighter down. It's not going to work. A lot of Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4, we're just going to look at 3 this morning, is a little bit like uh, the rehearsal before the wedding. Now, at the end of chapter 3, you actually get to the event. They will actually cross This Jordan River. But this is 40 years in the making of God's people uh, wandering in the wilderness, headed towards the promised land, and now they stand at the threshold of it. They've spied out the land. Joshua's been appointed the new leader. And he's about to lead them into the promised land. In almost the whole Old Testament, since the days of Joseph, it's been building to this point. So it's not a surprise that the text is going to slow down for a minute. The text is going to make much of this event. Like I said, we're going to look at chapter 3 this morning, and next week we'll consider chapter 4. But this week, it's all the events leading up to The crossing, the immediate events. The end of chapter 3, they'll all be across on the other side safely. You might think of it, this this week's a little like the pregame. And next week will be the the post-game report, and you'll see some replays of the highlights. But one of the things I want you to notice as we begin in chapter 3, there will be... uh, this thing that takes center stage in this event, and it is the Ark of the Covenant. Seventeen times it's going to be mentioned in these two chapters. And this is how it begins. Joshua chapter 3, beginning verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out for Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people: as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of your Lord being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Then the Ark of the Covenant, as they're preparing for the crossing here, the Ark of the Covenant, um, it's a it's Two and a half cubits long, uh, one and a half cubits high, and the same on the breadth. So it's about four feet by two feet by two feet. It's made of acacia wood, and it's covered on the inside and the outside of it with gold plating. And this ark is—you uh, think of it—it's it's a sacred box, and it represents the tangible presence of God. His leadership of the people, and and it's where God met with his people later in Israel's history. The Ark of the Covenant would reside in Solomon's temple uh, in in the Holy of Holies. If you turned over to Hebrews chapter 9, you could find out what the contents of the Ark were. The writer of Hebrews tells us there's a golden urn that's holding manna that's inside of it, Aaron's staff, Moses' brother, that um, uh, was a budding staff. And you have um, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets of the covenant are there in the ark. Now, over the top of the ark was known as the mercy seat. It was kind of the lid, if you will, that set on top of this box and it was adorned with with two golden cherubim and their wings were pointed in and they were facing each other. And this mercy seat it it represented, if you will, like the throne of God on earth. It was the it was the place where the blood of atonement would be sprinkled. Notice the instructions related to the ark in verse 4. Yet there will be a distance between you and it. So the ark comes out, the Levitical priests will bring it, you're going to follow it, and they said, but yet there will be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go or you've not passed this way before. You might have a note in your Bible that helps you know what 2,000 cubits is. A cubit's about 18 inches long. 2,000 cubits would be about 3,000 feet, a little over half a mile. Half a mile is how far you're supposed to stay away from the ark. So why the distance from this Ark of the Covenant. Well, one of the things that might come to your mind, if you know the Old Testament, is the episode in 2 Samuel 6, when when David, he's going to go take the Ark of the Covenant, and he's going to bring it into Jerusalem. And as they're carrying it, um, one of uh, his men, Uzzah, reaches out the... the, the colt that's, you know, pulling it stumbles. The ark looks like it's going to fall and hit the ground. Uzzah reaches out to, to steady the, the, the ark, and he's struck dead. Having violated where it says in Numbers, you'll never, you should never, you will never touch the ark. In fact, there were these golden rings that were attached to the side of it so that they could put long poles in the rings and carry it by the poles. Maybe you remember that from Uzzah's experience. Maybe you remember the scene in the Indiana Jones, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. When the Nazis, you know, they get their hands on it, and they open the lid, and they all melt. So, you know, between the Uzzah and the, and the Nazis, you might think, look, the ark, this is a dangerous box, and we should stay as far away from it as we possibly can. And honestly, if we didn't know anything else, that, uh, you know, that's not a bad idea. Holiness, which is what the ark represents, the holiness of God, the presence of God, it can be very lethal for sinners. In fact, the holiness of God, the the presence of God, spoken of the the, the glory of God, all these are wrapped up in who God is. And and Moses in Exodus chapter 33, he wants to see God. He tells God, God, I just want to see you. But God tells him, it's not possible for you to see me. Not, Not face to face anyway, it's not survivable. I'll tell you what I'll do, though, Moses. I'll, I'll set you in, the, in a cleft of a rock. I'll, I'll cover you. I'll pass by you as I pass by. You, you can see the back of me as I, as I pass by. And so Moses does, and he comes down the mountain, comes to the Israelites, and it says that his face is shining, it's glowing, it's radiating, having caught just a glimpse of the back of God. And the Israelites said, Moses, you've got to put a veil over your face. We, we can't even look at you. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he sees God high and lifted up. And The text goes on to, that Isaiah cries out that, he's, that he's, just, he's undone. He realizes in that moment more than any other moment in his life what a sinner that he is. Similar language is in Revelation when John, he's on the Isle of Patmos and he sees Jesus and he uses the same kind of language Isaiah uses to describe what it is that he sees. And it says that he fell down as though he was dead at the feet of Jesus. Every now and then as you read the Gospels, the disciples, they'll, they'll catch a glimpse of of Jesus, and it's like the veil comes down, and they, and they see Jesus for who he is. I mean, they see Jesus for all of who he is. In fact, Luke records the time that Peter first met Jesus, and Peter's fishing, and he's been fishing all night. Jesus comes up to the shore, and he says, Hey, did you catch anything? He says, No, I didn't catch anything. Jesus, Well, put your net in over on the other side. To which Peter, you know, Luke kind of veils it, but you can tell he's frustrated. He's like, look, I'm a fisherman. I've been doing this all night. I didn't catch anything. But to appease him, he takes the net, throws it in on the other side, and Luke describes the net filling up his, with fish and then the boat filling up with fish and the boat beginning to sink, and all of a sudden Peter realizes who he's in the presence of, and, he's, and he falls down on his face. In front of Jesus, Hebrews twelve twenty nine reminds us: God is a consuming fire, and all these things are true. We, you don't play around in the play, in the presence of God. It's it's serious business, and. and And I believe Scripture plays that out in every direction. But I'll tell you, I don't think that's the whole reason here, that they're to keep the distance that they're prescribed to keep from the ark. Look at the text again with me. In verse 4, It says about halfway, it says, don't come near it. It says after it tells you how far away. And then it says, in order that. Do you see that? In order that. It's it's what we call a purpose statement. It gives us the reason. And in this case, the reason follows. It says that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. In other words, what, what God's saying is it's a guide. It's, it's in order that the ark can show you the way. They, they haven't passed this way before. They've been, they've been coming to this. It's been a 40-year journey to get to this place, but they've not been the way that God's going to take them to go. The Lord's led them, and he's still leading them. His, his presence, his word, they, they go before them. He leads the way. And at this distance, they would be able to see that clearly. See, they'd be able to see the priests. We'll find out in just a minute, though. They'll step into the water. The waters will part 16 miles up one side seven miles on the other side. And as they travel, and, and they're a half mile or to 3,000 feet away from the ark, they'll be able to cross and look and, and see the ark, see the, the power, see the water piled up. They'll have a full view of, of what God's doing in his presence. It'll be a sight that they'll never forget. See, they're headed into the promised land. And there'd be excitement, but at the same time, it's full of things unknown. They, they, they know it'll be dangerous. They know at times it'll be overwhelming. And you've got to think, there's moms and there's dads and they're pushing strollers and they're carrying luggage and, you know, bringing their animals. I mean, where are they going to settle? How are they going to settle? It's this incredible moment in which these people will need faith to trust God. It's a moment that they're going to hang on to. In fact, in chapter 4, what we see is they're going to memorialize it. One commentator, old preacher Alexander McLaren, he says this, God often opens his hand one finger at a time. It's what's happening here? It's, it's enough to see just the next step and then to trust God for what we can't see yet. Indeed, it's the essence of true faith to, to trust where we cannot see because we walk by faith, not by sight, Paul tells us. It's Israel's responsibility that they're going to be responsible to follow. It's not going to be their role. It's not our role to second guess what God will do any more than it is to argue about what he could possibly, how he could possibly do it. We have to follow him. And faith, what it does is it it bids us to to gather up all our our cares and all our worries and all our anxieties and wrap them in the knowledge of, That God has taken the responsibility for every step ahead of us. Faith leaves it all with God. Here's this principle that comes out of this for us. We must never give up what we do know because of the things we don't know. We never want to give up the things that we do know because of the things that we don't know. And this gives them a a clear, full, all inspiring view of what God is about to do. Listen, even though we don't know how God's faithfulness and God's power will be revealed... What we do know is that He's our God, committed to us by unbreakable promise, and that His love is as great as His power, and it knows no end. So, verse 4 is very specific about the proximity instructions, if you will. Well, in verse 5, there's also going to be some, some personal preparation instructions. Look at verse 5. It says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. You get ready. Consecrate yourself. I, I, the, the, the idea is both physically and spiritually. So wash your clothes, take a sponge bath, you know, all, all of these things. But it points to something deeper. Something going on on the inside, something spiritual. It's, a, it's an act of submission. It's, a, it's an act of dependence upon God. It would have been a time of personal examination and prayer and confession, much like we just had before we took the Lord's Supper together. They had to prepare themselves spiritually in order to be able to see what was happening rightly, they had to prepare themselves spiritually so that they would be able to see what is happening in the right way. They would be able to perceive it rightly. I'll give you one example from Scripture, although they're all over Scripture. One of the great examples is Psalm 73. If you're not acquainted with Psalm 73, it's a great one to mark in your Bible and spend the afternoon just looking at and being amazed by it. And, and, and it's the beginning of what, what you would say in the Psalms is the beginning of book three of the Psalms. There are five Psalms is divided into five books, and this is the beginning of the third book. But, but it's helpful to remember how the beginning of the first book starts in Psalm 1. Listen to some of these familiar words. It may be familiar to you. The Psalms begin. It's like this invitation. But blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he'll be like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season. In all he does, he, he prospers. This is what a blessed man does. And he goes on, he ends it, with the, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And it's your invitation Come into the Psalms. Come in. Come in and and learn righteousness. Come in and meditate on God's Word. That's the promise. That's the hope. That's the invitation. Believe God's Word. Plant yourself in His promises. Follow Him wherever He leads you, trusting that He's good. Now, when you open up the beginning of Psalm 73, the beginning of the third this is what the psalmist says. He says, truly, God's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes on, "They, they don't Suffer any pains of death, their body, bodies are fat and sleek, that used to be real in vogue. They don't have any trouble. they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're always at ease. They increase in their riches. For 16 verses, the psalmist is ticked off. says, "Look, it's not fair." I've been following God. I've been trusting God. What's this gotten me? I, I, I seem to be losing. They they seem to be winning. I thought when I came into this psalmist thing, reading these psalms, that, that, that my ways would prosper. Doesn't look like that to me. Yet it all Changes, there's this turning point. And he says, I didn't know how in the world I was going to understand this until, he says, I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I was able to understand. Then I was able to see. Now I see I was all wrong. God, you never left me. You never let go of my hand. You never ceased leading me. And that's what they're being called to do here in Joshua chapter 3. Consecrate yourself. Worship. It's the means by which we learn how to see the blessings that we've received. It gives us vision to beyond the appearances of things and see them as they truly are and God doesn't want them to miss what is about to happen consecrate yourself remind yourself of the things that are real Craig Barnes writes this book Hustling God he says this he says sometimes I stand at the door of the sanctuary after Sunday worship someone will say well pastor that was great But now it's time to return to the real world. And he says, well, I'm usually gracious when I hear that, but every bone and muscle within me wants to reach out and grab that person by the lapels and say, don't you get it? This was the most real thing you'll do all week. Now it's time to return to a world that's so blind to the presence of heaven that it will constantly lie claiming that that you're on your own in this life. worship we've come together to to worship and it it helps restore our perspective it allows us to to look up and to see the power of god and how god's power is at work in all the events of our lives in ways that otherwise we can't see and we have to have that vision. We have to be able to look beyond the surface of things. And there's, because there's plenty of reasons to be afraid. Plenty of reasons to have false hope. We consecrate ourselves so that we don't miss what it is that God's doing in our lives. There's this proximity to what God's doing. There's this preparation for what God's doing. Verse 6 and the verses that follow, he's going to talk about this protocol. And and in verse 6 he says, And so Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took the ark of the covenant and they went before the people. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel That they may know that as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. Joshua, I'm I'm, I'm gonna lead you just as I led Moses, and there'll be moments that you doubt your leadership, but don't. I'm with you. Then in verse eight, he says, "And, And as for you, command the priests who bear the ark of the covenant, and when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, You shall stand in the Jordan. Now, here's how it's going to work. This is the protocol. Tell the priests, take the ark and enter the water. Get get in the river. Now, verse 15 tells us, we don't know this yet, but verse 15 tells us, although we could suspect it at this point, it's going to be a raging river. So, you're going to take the ark, put the poles through the rings, You're going to hoist it up, this throne of God. You're going to make sure you're 2,000 cubits away from everybody else so that we can all see it. And you're going to step into the water. Now, at this point, there are no other details. Just this is the next step. Step. Sometimes the next step is terrifying, isn't it? Joshua says in verse 9, And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here, listen to the words of the Lord your God. Okay, gather around. This is what God says. By the the way, this is good leadership. Joshua doesn't know all the details of the next seven years. That's how long it's going to be. Seven years until they rest. But he does know the next step. And so he says, this is what God says. And then he begins to give him the purpose of this crossing. Look, look at verse 10. And so Joshua said, here's how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will not fail to drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Gargashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Pretty good. So, what's about to happen, he says, is there are seven nations, and we are gonna drive them out. And, and that's and then what's about to happen. So, he says, pay close attention, hang on to this, remember this God's with us, the, the living God. And he's going to drive out these nations. He's going to use us. But make no mistake, it's what God is going to do. And so hang on to your hats because this first step, this first step is going to be amazing. Look at how he goes on. He says, behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the ark of uh, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down. Uh, From the waters coming down uh, above shall stand in one heap. So the water's raging. And the suspense is rising. And the land of promise is in sight. And What what in the world is about to happen? When my kids were little, there was a moment for each of them, a, a summer moment, if you will, you know. It happened at the pool and they're on the diving board and I'm treading water below and there's excitement and there's fear, terror, noise. I'm saying, just look at me. Focus on me. You, you can do this. I, I'm going to catch you. And there's a certain amount of Chaos that's happening in that moment. You know, if you're standing on that diving board and you're a little kid, your mind is spinning and you can hardly think, and the emotional part of your brain is in absolute full control, and fear has a grip on you. And this is the ancient picture associated with raging water, the the deep water. It's chaos. And God speaks into that chaos. He speaks into the uncertainty and the fear and the doubt. And with a word, he brings order. It's what he did in Genesis 1. It's what he's going to do here in Judges 3. His presence steps into the chaos. And in a moment, the waters will be parted and the land is dry, and what surely looks like death becomes new life breaking through. Dale Davis says, if, if the Lord can tame a raging river, he can also repel attacking Amorites. If he can stop up the Jordan, he can put down a Girgashite. If he can get you into the land, he can surely give you the land. The rescue at the Red Sea, the crossing of the Jordan, the death and resurrection of Christ are explosions of God's power that are meant to color the whole horizon of a believer's life in order to assure us that God, who so mightily handles great emergencies, is surely adequate for the smaller crises and anxieties that beset us. The Apostle Paul says it this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Do you trust him? Do you trust him with your life today? Do you trust him with with whatever that is that's going on that you've been carrying around all week or all month or all year? Or maybe for the last decade. Can you trust him with it? Well, pick up in verse 14 and we'll see. They're going to get across. And so it says this, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark, these priests, had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, and then it says, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. This is the, the flood plain at this time, March, April, this is the harvest that he's talking about would have been anywhere from 200 yards across, two football fields across, to to maybe as as far as a mile across. The time of year, the, the raging of the water and the miracle about to be described, they all come together to make it absolutely plain that in the midst of utter helplessness, it's God who saves us. And we contribute nothing to that salvation. He goes on, so the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam or Adam, the city that is beside Zarephan, which if you were standing there and you looked to the right, that would be 16 miles away. And those flowing toward the Sea of Araba, the Salt Sea, we call it the Dead Sea, that they were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all of Israel was passing over Uh, Over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. The writer includes: wasn't just that the water stopped, the ground was dry. You don't need to look for some geological event that took place in 1500 BC to explain the parting of the water. You don't need to unmiracalize what just happened. The ground was dry and some 2 million people walked across as God's arch stood in the middle being carried by the priests. Psalm 121 says my help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. So this is the way God moves sometimes. He brings us into impossible circumstances, situations that seem bleak and hopeless. And it may be that He does that for the very reason, purpose of impressing upon us that when we make it through, and when we endure it, we're not overwhelmed and we're not washed away only because of His grace and His power. It's the way He teaches us. It's the way He draws us in our life. Well, I want to draw a line this morning from this passage to the New Testament. And the line, it goes from the Ark of the Covenant specifically the mercy seat that sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the, the place of, a, of atonement, the, where the justice of God meets the mercy of God. And, and on the Day of Atonement, a sacrifice would be made and blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat, the throne of God, if you will. And the sacrifice made it possible For the Israelites to experience the presence of God. And so when you get to the New Testament, the New Testament makes clear in several places that Jesus, he's he's the mercy seat. And he's the sacrifice, the, the atoning sacrifice. He's the mercy seat sacrifice, if you will. If you were to ask any fifth grader, almost any. To finish the statement, God is, most of them would say God is love. Comes from First John chapter 4. It's the end of verse 8. And then John goes on and says, so God is love, and then he says, well, in this, in this, The love of God was made manifest among us. We were able to see God's love among us. And he says that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And then he says it this way In this is love. So you say, okay, God's love. John's going to say, In this is love. Okay, I want to I pay attention. I want to, okay, in this is love. He's going to describe the love of God for us. And he says it this way not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins you could translate it this way, sent his son to be the mercy seat atonement for our sins. That's the word. If you want to know what God's love is, what John is saying is gaze at the cross of Jesus. Stand back far enough away that you can see it and you can take it all in. That the Son of God came and took on flesh. The Bible says became your sin and died with your sin and became the object of of all of God's wrath and justice. It was all poured out on him. And so you gaze at the cross, and you say, that, that's love. That's what John says. That's what you're looking at. I'll tell you a story, and we'll close. There's a woman named Helen Lamell, and she was born in England in 1863, Her dad was a Wesleyan pastor, immigrated to America. When she was a child, she grew up. She loved music. She attended Moody Bible Institute. She got married. Life was going her way until it wasn't. And she had a tragic accident at the age of 40, and it left her blind. And soon after that, her husband left her because living with a blind wife was too hard for him. And then right after that, her health failed. And then before long, she was destitute and she had nothing. And so at age 55, she's living on government assistance. And she's praying. She's in the, living in the back of these people's house. She's praying. She's meditating on Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, God says. All the ends of the earth for I'm God and there's no other. And she's, she's thinking about that. She's meditating on it. She's praying it. And all of a sudden, she finds herself overwhelmed. She said it this way. She said, I stood still and singing in my soul and spirit was the chorus. With not one conscious moment of putting word to word to make rhyme or note to note to make melody. Her friend Catherine finishes the story. It was Catherine's house she was living in the back of. She had no way to write those words down. And so she called my husband and he rushed down to record them before she forgot the words. She said Helen had this small plastic keyboard by her bed and there she would pray and she would sing and she would cry. One day God's going to bless me with great heavenly keyboards, she say. I can hardly wait. She wrote 500 hymns in her lifetime. Died in 1961, 13 days before her 98th birthday. Here is one of the songs she wrote that you know. In fact, the song that came to her in that moment when she was overwhelmed. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. His word shall not fail you. He promised. Believe him and all will be well. And go to a world that's dying in his perfect salvation tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's the same message since Joshua 3. Stand back. Look at the wonder of God. Be amazed and trust Him. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd, you'd do that in our hearts this morning. Father, as we sit here for this moment, and we've been sitting here for these moments, singing and praying and praying, Taking communion, consecrating ourselves. Father, I pray you'd give us eyes and perspective and the insight to see how you are at work in in our world our world collectively, our individual worlds, and Father, we'd be able to see under the surface of the things that that causes fear and doubt and anxiety and stand back far enough to see your power. And then, Father, to trust you in all your ways with all these steps that we have. So we ask this, and we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit, amen.